Welcome to Elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. And I'm Cody Harridge. So, if you're listening to this right now, you probably fall into one of three broad categories. You are either A, our parents, B, our parents' friends, or C, a friend of the show or someone who found us through our partners, Vancouver Co-op Radio. Hello to you all. Hello. Um, so, this being the pilot episode of Elsewhere, I suppose a good place to start would be by introducing ourselves. My name's Ian Ditchburn. I run the East Found Elsewhere blog, which is probably where you're listening to this now. Um, I'm a traveler, writer, student of anthropology, and I currently work in the film industry here in Vancouver. Nice. And uh, again, my name is Cody Harridge. I'm the sound engineer for Elsewhere. I edit the show, I wrote the theme music, and you can follow me on SoundCloud at BitCrack. Um, I also work as a chef. It's something that I've been doing for most of my life. You're also a signed skateboarder at one point. Uh, if by signed you mean I got free shoes once in a while, then, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you were even in a Dairy Queen commercial. That, that is right. <laughs> I'll be sure to throw the link up on, our, on the landing page for this episode so people can uh, see how deeply qualified you are to be running this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll just uh, try to keep the fan mail to a minimum, please, guys. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, to bring it back to the show, this is a project that we've been working on since back in April. And the premise is pretty simple. We want to tell stories through conversation. Each month, we'll bring you a new guest. I'll sit down, talk with them. Cody will throw it all together, and then we share it with you. New episodes will be released on the first of every month. We'd like to do more, but this is kind of a volunteer project. So, you know, maybe if it picks up, we'll commit to doing two a month. But (laughs) we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, the first episode, uh, the first guest for this episode is my friend Elena, who's an old friend of mine, who's doing some really interesting work in Ukraine. Uh, we were hanging out on Wreck Beach when she was telling me all about it, and I'd kind of had the idea for this podcast in my head at the time, and just, just listening to her talk about it, we pretty much decided right off the bat that she should be one of the guests. So, so if you're interested at all in global politics or the current war in Ukraine, this should be an interesting conversation for you to hear. And even if you're not interested, you should probably, you know, learn something about the world. <laughs> so without further ado, I bring you Elena. Okay, so right now we are sitting in my parents' lovely studio in the backyard in East Vancouver. Um, the sun is setting and I'm with my lovely friend, Elena. Uh, so in regards to how we know each other, you live in the same town where my mother went to university and we met when we were first uh, 17. Mm-hmm. And you've been pretty busy since then. I have. Yes. So perhaps let's get started with just a little bit about you, what your background is, and what you're currently up to. Okay. So I grew up in Wales. Um, my mum's Welsh and my dad's Ukrainian. So I grew up with a lot of stories about kind of Ukraine and the culture and all of this kind of thing. Um, my Both my grandparents survived the Holocaust. So we got a lot of stories of kind of that period of history and kind of the movement from Ukraine to Germany to the UK. So that kind of put me on this route into anthropology. So I started, I studied anthropology when I was 19. That's when I started. And then I just kind of carried on from there. Yeah. Became, got my degree, got the highest mark in my dissertation in the history of my department. So that's, that's wonderful. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, that was on memory and intergenerational memory and trauma among Ukrainians in living in the UK. So then my PhD kind of came organically from that. What did you do your master's then? My master's is master's of research in visual yeah. anthropology. Gotcha. So that was in the same, I'm um, at Goldsmiths University. 
So um, I just kind of stayed there for the whole time. Yeah. Uh, so that was basically developing the project. So I went to my supervisor when I was doing my degree and I said, I've got an idea for a project. It's a follow on from my uh, dissertation. So that's kind of, so it's looking at intergenerational memory among Ukrainians, but I wanted to take it to the Ukraine. Ukraine, it's not the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, so the MRES is basically just developing the project. So you do research design, research methods. Um, with the visual one, you also do visual methods. So I looked at kind of uh, photo elicitation. So it's looking at kind of um, look, like exploring photographs together. So you might look at a family photo album and see where that takes you, the stories that emerge and kind of the different memories that might come from those pictures. Mm-hmm. It's a method I use a lot with my PhD. What are you specifically looking at, though, for this project that you've been doing in Ukraine? So this project looks at the transmission of alternative histories in Ukraine following the Euromaidan revolution in 2014. So after the revolution, the new government introduced decommunization legislation that kind of uh, part of it is to do with kind of breaking with the trauma of the Soviet past. Mm -hmm. So it kind of removed all of the statues of Lenin it renamed streets and towns and villages. So anything that had a Soviet name got renamed mm. either with something that was more patriotic or kind of after the name of kind of a nationalist hero, something like that. Yeah. But within that legislation, there's a law which says that you cannot tell negative stories about Ukrainian nationalists. Mm-hmm. So during the Second World War, there were um, there was the UPA, which is the uh, Ukrainian insurgent army and the OUN, which was the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And they were kind of based in Western Ukraine, and they were kind of very anti-Soviet, kind of they wanted an independent Ukrainian state. And in order to do that, they collaborated with the Nazis, and they also participated in the Holocaust, and the Lviv pogrom, and this kind of thing. So under these new laws, it's you're not allowed to say that. You're yeah. not allowed to say that they kind of participate in the Holocaust. You're not allowed to say that they carried out ethnic cleansing against the Polish in the Volhynian mm. massacres. Um, you're not allowed to say that you can go to prison. I mean, it's not actually been... Those laws exist. And not a huge... Not, not many people have been prosecuted, but because most people are just not arguing with it. Yeah. From your understanding of, of the history, was the Ukrainian participation in the Holocaust more of a deal that they struck with the Germans in order to garner their support? Or was that something that the Ukrainians themselves were necessarily down with? That's a really, that's a really good question. Yeah. So there are a few different thoughts on this. So with my research, I do a lot of interviewing of people, both who were victims of these different kinds of oppression and people who kind of were either members or members of these groups or the kind of the descendants of members of these groups so one argument is that it was a few bad eggs in these groups um any kind of other collaboration was because the soviets were so much worse Mm. so it was more of a kind of um they're kind of stuck between these two powers and they thought we need to get rid of the soviets so and and because hitler had kind of Uh, They'd supported other uprisings in Romania, which led to kind of states being formed. So they thought if we collaborate with the Nazis, then they'll allow us to form our own state that is kind of subservient to them, which didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But then the other school of thought, which 
I kind of lean more towards is that there was actually an a, like a clear policy among the leadership of the Ukrainian nationalists. So they um so their leader Stepan Bandera is um there's a lot of like writings that he did mm-hmm. that calls for like a monoethnic totalitarian uh, Ukrainian state. And this is this this leader was in the 40s or is this a current Yeah, this okay. no this is in the 40s. Okay. So he kind of, he wanted, you know, they, they, were, they were against mixed marriage, so Ukrainians could only marry Ukrainians. And not just interracial, like at no Ukrainians with Polish, yeah. Russian, English, yeah. Yeah. Ukrainians with Ukrainians. Yeah. And uh, in the city that I work, Lviv, that's where he's from, uh, where he was from. And, um, and that was a very ethnically diverse place. So there were Armenians, there were Jews, there were Ukrainians, Polish, because this city has been, it was in Poland and then the border changed and then it was in Ukraine. It's kind of been uh, part of multiple border shifts over the last hundred years or even more. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very diverse. And then part of the Ukrainian kind of uh, ideology, for, like for the, na- the nationalist ideology, was about kind of creating this is ukrainian land it's like blood and soil like this is our land and we need to get rid of the people also because like the polish and the jewish community they were both kind of more elite so ukrainians were more like peasants and kind of in terms of class the the big houses in the center of the town were kind of often uh, polish people lived there and then there was a big jewish region like part of the part of the city so I think there was also a lot of kind of pent-up ill feeling between particularly the Ukrainians and the Polish so Ukraine there was a much more it wasn't just this is something we have to do because we want to be independent I believe that there was actually a lot more ideological kind of foundation to this than just the Nazis came and we were like okay we'll work with them well I suppose that's kind of the the focal point of your project, which is yeah. ongoing. So yeah, yeah. So to t- dial it back a little bit, um, you mentioned the revolution in two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Was it? What were the kind of uh, powers at play in that? I'm not super familiar with the, okay. with the history. So were they? It sounds like they were fighting to regain control of Ukraine out of kind of Soviet controlled hands or Russian controlled mm-hmm. hands. Is that and. Was this backed by the West or was this a purely Ukrainian kind of one revolution? So in 2013, the president was Yanukovych, who was a pro-Kremlin, kind of uh, pro-Russia president. So there was this big deal that had been being negotiated, which was the Ukrainian-European Union trade agreement that was widely seen as being kind of a precursor to... Uh, full membership of the EU, which is something that a lot of Ukraine... For Ukraine. For Ukraine. Yeah. So, um, which is something a lot of Ukrainians want. And, you know, that could also lead to things like membership of NATO and this kind of thing, which they currently don't have. Mm. But kind of at the last minute, Yanukovych pulled out of this agreement in favour of making a new deal with Putin and having mm. and creating a kind of a, a closer relationship with Russia. And there was an enormous kind of backlash against that, a huge uh, student protest. So they all went into Kyiv and they had this massive kind of demonstration, like pro-Europe uh, demonstration. And then the police came out and attacked them. And they were kind of violently attacked by the Ukrainian police. And this was, witn- this was seen by the older generations who kind of have lived through Soviet oppression and through Nazi occupation, through all of these things. And they were kind of like, 
we're not going to allow this to happen. You know, the Soviet Union, we were, we became independent in 91. It's now 2013. Like, we're not going to allow this to happen. So this led to an enormous kind of uh, gathering of multiple generations of people in the main independent square in Kyiv and the kind of very elite kind of special police force were sent out and they had snipers and they killed a hundred people who were unarmed and were demonstrating and they were and there was a peaceful demonstration until the police attacked so this kind of rather than convincing people to go back to their homes this was like no like we're not gonna we're not gonna accept this so they built barricades it was very kind of um French Revolution kind of thing, building this, these yeah. enormous barricades. And there's a great film called um, Winter on Fire that shows, like, there's one young guy going, oh, these older guys taught us how to build these barricades. We need to use this memory or this knowledge that the older people have to learn for ourselves. And um, and gradually over time, basically, the, the Ukrainian parliament voted to kind of, I think they voted to impeach Yanukovych, and mm-hmm. he, he escaped uh, to Russia. Oh, big and, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so they stormed his palace and they found things like a lake with a massive ship in it and like his own private zoo and loads of gold. And I think I remember hearing about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. And Vice did a really interesting mini documentary about it as yeah. well. And they did this big fashion shoot there actually afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of that happened in early 2014. Mm. Uh, but following that, then you have the annexation of Crimea by Putin. Exactly. I was just going to say, like, it's it's an ongoing situation. So that yeah. pushback against kind of yeah. Russian influence has been, which was obviously a positive thing for most of the, has yeah. now resulted in a, a hot war going Absolutely, on in, in yeah. eastern Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. So you had Crimea that was annexed. They then held a vote, which many say was illegal, saying that they wa- it was a referendum in Crimea, saying that they wanted to be part of Russia which many say, you know, many Crimean Tatars didn't vote in this in this election and mm. this kind of thing. Is there any allegations of fraud in that? or Not fraud exactly, because it's Russia. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there was a lot of allegations of intimidation mm. and kind of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there are many countries that don't, you know, they, they acknowledge it as occupied territory. They don't acknowledge it as part of Russia. Um, but then the war kind of, then a load of, pro-Russian separatists kind of um, decided that they wanted to become an autonomous region of Russia in Luhansk and Donetsk. And so that that kind of then, um, they sort of took over their local governments and declared, you know, the Donetsk People's Republic and this kind of thing. And that's really where the war is kind of focused now. Mm -hmm. So you have the pro-Russian separatists who are trained and funded and supplied by the Russian government. And you have the Ukrainian military who are fighting there. You know, it's kind of simmering along. It's n- normally two or three people a day are killed. It's kind of this sort of bizarre thing where it's like life goes on as normal, even though there's intermittent shelling. Like kids are in school until the school gets shelled and then like they go back to school a few days later and this kind of thing. It's very... um. Is there not a push to bring people away from the fighting? Like bring people who are living in those kind of contestant regions until mm-hmm. it gets resolved. I'm wondering why the the people who live there wouldn't move, mm. just move further west. Like if there's a danger of a mm. school being shelled, you'd think that they would So move. two million people have already been, have been displaced, yeah. but they've all been displaced internally. And that's why there's no kind of refugee thing mm. within Europe. But then there's also lots of people who, you know, they're very poor and they don't have anything. They don't have any money. This is all, these places, these homes are all they have. 
So I read an article a couple of days ago about a guy who's living, like sleeping in his bath because that's the only room in a, of his house that's not been destroyed by shelling. So he's living in his bathroom. And um, and a lot, a lot of these people don't... They're also, they're seen as kind of suspicious in the rest of Ukraine because they're kind of, they're from the East. They're seen as more like... My grandmother was from the East and when she moved, when she came to the UK, uh, nearly everyone in her community was from the West and she was known as the Russian because oh. the dialect of Ukrainian is different. Often people in Eastern Ukraine actually speak Russian. They don't speak Ukrainian, this kind of thing. So they're kind of seen with a lot of suspicion and kind of there's a, there's a bit of hostility between like the West and the East. So like uh, someone I know, she went to a conference from Lviv right in the West in Kharkiv, which is right in the East. And people called her like um, Banderika, which means follower of Bandera, which is kind of a derogatory term for kind of like call, basically calling you like a Nazi or kind of a fascist or oh, this wow. kind of thing. So there is this kind of strong that there is strong feelings between these two regions, too. So and then there are people, you know, old old ladies who their their daughters there or their grandchildren are there and it's kind of people don't have the means to move. Yeah. And um and because it's kind of it's not like it's not like the things that we see out of kind of Syria where it's like everything's just falling down all the time and it's constant. It's like this simmering kind of tension that kind of flares up at certain points. So like uh immediately after Trump's inauguration there was a massive flare up. And there are different arguments for why that is. Like one was saying, it's so Ukrainians trying to show why the U.S. can't stop supporting Ukrainians because, like, the the war's so bad. Mm-hmm. Others were saying it was the Russians kind of anticipating that Trump was going to withdraw support for Ukraine oh. and taking advantage. So there's all of this different kind of misinformation going on. So no one really knows. It's kind of there's a, a supposed ceasefire in place, the Minsk Agreement, but no one really knows. Kind of what is going like who's provoking who when there's flare-ups kind of each accuses the other yeah all of this kind of thing it's it's really it's really complicated yeah but. so you were mentioning uh, when we were talking about this the other day that there's ideologically some problematic um views on the side of the the, the pro-ukraine the ukrainian mm-hmm. nationalists um specifically um which ties into what your project is a lot of like white nationalism yeah how pervasive are these views in the government in the culture and pe- mm. like people that you've met in general mm. it's it's really hard to say with the government so you have kind of this this president who is a billionaire He's a chocolate billionaire, so he owns all of oh. these chocolate shops. <laughs> Delightful. Um, and you have all of these, you know, they're very, they have this very nationalist kind of, uh, the, well, some people might argue the nationalist legislation, other people say it's just trying to break with the past, like this, decommun- this decommunization legislation. But then you have these kind of more in the background groups that are kind of seen to maybe be propping them up. Like you have Svoboda, which is one particular right-wing party, where you know they they claim that they're they're not kind of they're not white nationalists they're not it's kind of it's this this sort of like we've seen in other places this new face of kind of the alt the alt kind yeah. of it's this sort of thing but then with kind of young people particularly in western Ukraine where they see themselves as like the inheritors of this struggle of this liberation struggle against the Russians you have a lot of young people who are like they they join groups at quite a young age that are kind of like the scouts 
Mm. And then it kind of builds up. They go and do things like um, fast in commemoration of the Holodomor, which was a genocide, like a genocidal famine that happened in the 30s that was orchestrated by Stalin. They kind of, a lot of them are in the military or in kind of paramilitary groups um, and this kind of thing. Um, it's difficult to say because a lot of it is kind of tied up with being anti-Russian and it's not so it's kind of anti it's all of this like national white nationalism under the guise of like we're just fighting for our freedom against the Russians who want to destroy us Mm -hmm. um but it's tricky because it's like you can meet someone and you can really see where they're coming from you can really get that like they've had a really tough time and they've and and kind of this the stuff that's going on with Russia is really impacting young people like their freedom of movement within Europe, you know, being part of the EU would mean that they could kind of have more job prospects, it would improve the economy. And, and currently they, they have not been approved for no. membership in the EU, so no. that despite the revolution that did not yeah. go through. No, and I believe particularly that's because the EU does not want a country that has an ongoing war on their border, like in, in the, in because the minute they're in Europe, Europe has to deal with a war that's going on. Mm-hmm. Also, if Ukraine becomes part of Europe, they do not want, they'll have Russia right on their border. Oh. So that Ukraine is like a buffer between But is it really a buffer? Like Well, I, well, I guess in terms of embroilment in yeah. in terms of yeah, that seems so counterintuitive that it's like you have this, you know, they are a European country yeah. and they're your neighbor. Yeah. And they're ignoring them yeah. because they don't want to get involved. I, un- I understand the motivations behind it, but it seems pretty far from Absolutely. egalitarian. or <laughs> Exactly. Particularly seeing as a big part of the EU was to prevent a war in Europe from ever happening and again. And now they're just going to ignore it and look the other way. Exactly. But going back to the nationalism, there's kind of... Um... It's really tricky because I actually met someone who... She lives in the US now. And uh, but she grew up in Ukraine, and her she was telling me about how her boyfriend really likes Bernie Sanders, and uh, is her boyfriend Ukrainian? No, it's no, American. American. And then she said because he was still in the US, and she'd come back for a bit, and she goes, uh, she says about Bernie Sanders, she was like, oh, you know, he's a Jew, but you know, he's pretty good, <laughs> and there's a lot of this kind of casual kind of anti-Semitism or or racism that kind of doesn't really whereas in the UK or here or something that would not be acceptable Mm. kind of it just kind of goes like or it'd be at least kept behind kind of closed doors people wouldn't make such flippant comments yeah to someone you don't even know someone you just met for the first time well that's a pretty good indicator of what well if that's what people are saying in public what could people be saying behind closed doors exactly be a bit more extreme Exactly. And I think uh, particularly with things like the Holocaust, when we're talking about the Holocaust, there's a there's kind of uh, a lot of people that they accept that it's something that happened, but it's something that happened somewhere else. Like it didn't really happen here. And um, and if it did, it was kind of it was the Nazis. It wasn't us. Yeah. And um, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, there are Jewish properties that are now lived in by wealthy Ukrainian people. It doesn't change. There were no reparations. The entire Jewish community was wiped out. And you can see, you know, when you go to certain places, you can see, um, like, steps and paving stones made from Jewish grave gravestones. What? <laughs> you, can go to, you can go to, like, courtyards of buildings, like, so it's apartments, and there's a courtyard, and you can see the Jewish paintings where that wall used to be a synagogue wall. 
there was the the there was a ruin of the Golden Rose Synagogue that was going to be demolished that had been burned down by the Nazis and it was going to be demolished to have a hotel there but there was a really uh, big campaign to with EU funding actually to have a memorial there it's called the Space of Synagogues and so that's a one kind of very clear memorial that's actually there in the city but right next door <laughs> there's this place called at the golden rose and it's a it's a part of a chain of what's called emotional restaurants and this is a jewish themed emotional restaurant so when you go there there's a lot of the people who work there wear those hats with the curls yeah the hasidic jew yeah where and then when you go in they you know they they welcome you by saying like shalom and then they give you a menu and this menu has no prices on it. So then when you ask for the bill, they give you a bill that has an, like an extortionate price. And your job is to haggle for this. Oh God. <laughs> and then, so you propose your price and then they make you do some kind of humiliating task in order for them to kind of accept this price. So it's either like sing a Jewish song, do a Jewish dance. Humiliating. <laughs> yeah. And what they consider humiliating. And then... Um, and then they'll kind of give you a cheaper price. And they say, oh, this is just kind of celebrating the fact that Jewish people like money. And, but through the window of this restaurant, you can see this ruin of this synagogue that was burned down by the Nazis. This restaurant is named after the Golden Rose, which was this synagogue that was burned down. And the memorial is right next door. It's a bit on the nose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, how do people generally feel about about Israel then? I know this doesn't really have to do with your mm. research, but maybe you picked it up along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So I've um so there's a few people who I know who I've um who have met people from Israel either going to kind of summer schools, or um I actually met someone from Israel when I was in Odessa, and I think the feeling towards Israel is kind of like well they're kind of their their own country i think there's not very negative feeling towards mm. what's going on with palestine or anything like that um which is interesting i think and i mean the people who i know who've kind of met people from israel are also people who are in holocaust studies and this kind of thing mm. so it's kind of there's not really that much conversation about it i think i think there's a lot of feeling about why is there so much global focus on places like syria and um and Palestine when no one's paying attention to what's going on here like the fact that Ukrainians are being killed by the Russians and all this kind of thing I mean the scales are vastly different and mm. that's what I believe you know thousands more people have been killed in Syria and Palestine than in Ukraine but still I think there's a lot of resentment towards the kind of global like people globally ignoring what's going on I think in it's Ukraine. more of like a difficult issue as well because yeah. once you address the fact that Russia is actively engaging in acts of war and you fully talk about exactly. that, then you have to, the next logical step would be to do something you about it. You have to it. intervene, exactly. And I suppose a lot of the governments don't really want to do that. No. Um, so back to your research. So what kind of questions do you generally ask people when you're, when you're giving them these, these interviews? So a lot of what I do is life history interviews. So that's basically just sitting down with someone and either going through their photo album or just kind of having a chat about their life story. So I I don't ever kind of go at like, so tell me about the Holocaust. Or so yeah. tell me about, it's just kind of collecting their life story. And um, 
and they just kind of you know if it's an older person they'll start from being a child before the war to, and kind of talk through you know their experience in their village of kind so of you must be arguing with a lot of older yeah. quite older people yeah yeah. yeah yeah and so like their experience of soviet occupation nazi occupation nationalist occupation and this kind of thing so there was one guy who i interviewed who in his village there was both a communist presence and nationalist presence so all of these boys would go to school and there was this organization called Komsomol, which was the like communist scouts and they were forced to join because if they didn't join like then it would reveal that their parents went pro-nationalist and that would mean that they could be deported to siberia they go back to their village and then the nationalists executed them for joining Komsomol because that's a pro-communist organization yeah. so there was a lot of this being caught between these two fighting groups and um but a lot of these stories are kind of told because they're like the memories of a child that people kind of so this like this particular interview he mentioned that but what he really talked about was how his mum would keep this bag of dry bread behind their kind of their bed so if they were going to get deported they'd have something to eat they, she could grab it and they would go so a lot of these stories are kind of the very strong emotional memories of this difficult period and the same then throughout sort of um throughout their lives like the communist period and later so i do intergenerational interviews as well so you have like the the grandparent the parent and the grandchild and it kind of um so then so you have this grandparent who has these memories this then leads them to kind of uh have a big thing about bread later. So food's really important because they remember this time when there was this constant fear, either hunger or being deported or whatever. So then they kind of, their, their children grow up with this kind of real kind of anxiety about bread. And then that kind of leads on to kind of their, it's like an, a, a transmission, like an inheritance. Almost of, like epigenetics. Like yeah, exactly. Like it three generations. Exactly. So I kind of work a lot with post-memory which is this idea of kind of uh, inherited memory. So there's this one woman called Marianne Hirsch who's written these amazing books about post-memory and she calls, so there's this great quote where she says, um, it's something like, the, the, their first-hand memories have been evacuated by the memories of things that came before them. So she's specifically talking about the children of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, I know in my family with having, like my grandma, she, you know, she'd survived... The Ukrainian genocide, the Holodomor, then she survived the Holocaust, like, she went through all of this stuff, but that was all she talked about, so, like, you'd, we'd be at dinner, and, like, you're a kid, and you're full, and she'd be like, you've got to eat that, I remember being starving, I remember we had to eat the leaves on the trees, and all this kind of thing, so then it leads you to a point where you're like, oh, god, I've got to finish all my food, oh, my god, like, and it creates this stress, and I think, that's something that really fuels my research is I have that first-hand experience of it being like a, you know my that was a big thing my dad grew up with and then that's a big thing that we grew up with this kind of memory of this kind of this family history that kind of kind of trumps everything mm-hmm. it's kind of like nothing can be as bad as being in a camp so like it's such a traumatic event exactly so when you're a kid and like you might fall over and like scrape your knee and you're like oh this is the worst thing in the world and then your grandma's like you don't know what pain is <laughs> and it's kind of like it, it creates like it changes the way you are in the world I think and I think that that is something that a lot of this work is focused on holocaust studies around post-memory and I think that can be applied much more broadly particularly with 
countries that have gone through such trauma, like Ukraine being occupied by, you know, experiencing the war. You know, millions of Ukrainians died in the war between the Soviets and the Nazis. Pretty much the worst place to be geographically during yeah. World War Two would be right there. Exactly. So you have like Babi Yar, which killed, it was the biggest massacre. I think one of the biggest mass- massacres of the entire war happened in Kyiv. And that was, you know, 30,000 uh, Jews were killed in the first two days. And then you had, I think it was over 150,000 Jews and Ukrainians were killed overall over this period of time. And I think because Ukraine was always seen as part of the Soviet Union, there's also this thing of it like, people talk about Russia being part of the war, Russia winning the war, all of this kind of stuff. But actually, a lot of that was Ukrainian, kind of Ukrainian soldiers. Because you have this nationalist, you, this nationalist groups in the west of Ukraine who kind of did fight against the Soviets. But you also had a huge number of Soviet Ukrainians who were in the Red Army, whether they were conscripted or joined up or whatever. Who pushed back against... Yeah. Yeah. And so when people, you know, in the West go, oh, yeah, well, you know, it was the Allies, it was Russia and America and the US and these places. And people are like, where's Ukraine? It was the Soviet Union, which is a very different thing, because within the Soviet Union, it's a union of these different yeah. states. And so Ukraine gets forgotten a lot there, too. So I think there's so many different threads of this history that kind of gets homogenized when we start talking about, like, Russia and Ukraine and kind of nationalism and all these things it's kind of it's a very complicated place (laughs) how do you feel about are are you in any legal because it's illegal to talk about the holocaust in ukraine i imagine that also applies to foreigners have you had any kind of nosy government um officials asking what you're doing over there or have like what what's that kind of situation look like not really and because it's not illegal to talk about the holocaust it's illegal to talk about ukrainian involvement in the holocaust so it's kind of two very kind of different things and i think because my project was sort of about like it's about family memory and it's about kind of um, kinship and objects. And this is, you know, the way, because I talk th- like w- with people about photographs and this kind of thing. And being a woman, you know, if you're like, I'm a woman and I'm going to go and talk about family and this kind of thing, it doesn't seem as threatening as if I was a man going, I'm going to go and talk about politics and the Nazis. It's kind of, mm-hmm. that really helps, I think. That was smart. Um, yeah, it's a good. My supervisor is very good at kind of advising in that way. It's kind of if you if a, if you're a woman talking about kinship, they're going to ignore you because it's like typical. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that kind of institutional sexism that really actually helps women anthropologists. I think it also helps when you're interviewing people who maybe have quite extreme views because they're kind of like, oh, she's a woman. What's she ever going to do? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're kind of a big bloke who turns up and you're kind of like, oh, so want to talk to me about politics? then that kind of, it gets people's backs up in a way that it doesn't if you're a kind of a young woman, I think. Um, but I mean, I did have some visa problems, but it's like, it's unclear what caused them. So like, it could just be a kind of tit for tat thing where like, it's very difficult for Ukrainians to get visas for the UK. So why should they make it easy for us? But then there is an other, there's, it's also possible that they kind of had an idea about what I was doing. And we're like, no, we're not going to renew your visa. But then, you know, I went back on a tourist visa and this kind of thing. So it wasn't impossible, but it made things a bit harder. But um, yeah, it's kind of, it's very easy to get very paranoid about these things. And I think it's better if you're you're not having that many problems not to kind of 
think about it too much. Yeah. Um, what do people feel about you asking them these types of questions? Do they view it suspiciously or how, what's the kind yeah. of general response been? Not really suspiciously. And I think part of that is because I'm half Ukrainian. So I think going back and kind of saying, oh, yeah, I'm from the diaspora and like my and like my grandparents are from here and that it makes you much more kind of like um oh you're returning to the to the land you're returning to the motherland you know i had one one guy I interviewed gave me a copy of the ukrainian constitution and in it he wrote um uh dear elena a ukrainian who was born abroad and this kind of thing so i think that really helps kind of saying you know i mean that people also say things like you know oh you're you know uh you're mixed blood, but you look pure blood and this kind of thing, because there is this kind of, there's a lot of discussion of blood. Um, it's very kind of very Harry Potter. <laughs> Have you mentioned that you're part Jewish to any of these people? No. And no, I haven't. And I think that that's kind of, um, because it's, because that, that history is very, and very confusing in my family too, because there was a lot of pogroms that were going on kind of historically and so my family really hid the fact that they were Jewish and changed their name and, and all of this kind of thing. So it was very kind of my, my grandfather didn't even know that there was that his family was Jewish because his parents didn't tell him. So this to is protect only, him. Yeah, from kind of pogroms or anti-Jewish kind of action. And um, so I think I also, you know, there were things like my, my great grandmother, my grandfather's mother, was murdered by the Ukrainian nationalists. And um, when was this? This was in, would have been in the 40s, I think. So mm. he was already gone. He was already in a camp. And, um, but she was then, and his sister witnessed it. She's still alive and lives in Ukraine. But um, so that was a big thing. And, you know, I kind of really decided I wasn't going to tell anyone that, like there, because that immediately puts a barrier up if you're wanting to talk about the nationalists. And then you immediately say, my great-grandmother was murdered by them, that immediately positions you as kind of being anti-nationalist. Yeah. And if you want someone to talk to you about this, you can't create that thing of, like, good versus bad, or, like, I'm against you, or this kind of thing. You want to remain objective and kind exactly. of stay as partisan as possible, I guess. Yeah, and, like, while I don't believe that it's ever possible to be entirely objective, I think you can be non-judgmental. And I do kind of... The Ukrainians have been horribly oppressed by many different groups, many different governments over a long period of time. They've only actually had an independent nation since 1991. Like before then, they've never been independent. So I kind of, I think it's really important to understand that kind of, although these things have emerged in Ukraine, they've had a really, really difficult time. And I think that it's always more complicated than like a soundbite that you see on the news or like a short article that you might read and kind of people, you know, when people find out that you're working in Ukraine, they're like, oh, is that war still going on? And then it's kind of like, um, so yeah, I think part of what I, I'm really, I really want to try and do with my research is like, uh, is to kind of show that complexity and to kind of show that kind of, um, yeah, show that complexity and show that that history in a way that makes people understand that this isn't just a black and white kind of good versus bad sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that 
with like the Russia Ukraine situation, people want to know who to back. People want to know, like, and particularly because there's so much anti-Russian stuff in the world at the moment. People are like, oh, my enemy's enemy is my friend, so I'm going to support Ukraine. But then actually within Ukraine, you've got these really dangerous groups who are kind of nas- like ultra-nationalist and do have very dangerous ideas. And I think we just need to have a bit more skepticism when we're talking about these things. Well, one danger that I think could could easily arise. It seems that whenever there's a, a power vacuum post-conflict, yeah. whoever is going to rise into those positions of power, more often than not, as we've seen in like the Middle East and other regions, it's usually something a bit more hardline or a bit mm-hmm. more fundamentalist. So I think right now it's, it's, it's far from over, but yeah. what happens in the coming years are, is going to have a huge impact on the people you've been meeting over there oh, in absolutely. the future. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, I think the stuff in America is going to have a bit, play a big role in that too. Because, you know, Poroshenko, he ran his whole thing, was like, I'm going to run Ukraine like a business, which sounds very familiar Indeed. to... Um, I was going to ask what people generally think of Donald Trump over there. Yeah, it's... So I actually, the my first morning in Ukraine was, I woke up and it was the day after the election and it was like, Donald Trump has been elected. So that was my first morning on field work. And it was kind of, I kind of saw it coming at that point, but then I was like, wow, like, what does that mean for here? Because I think there was a lot of anxiety about what Trump's position on Ukraine will be because there was all of this flip He's so vague. Exactly. And still is. Yeah, exactly. Like, Putin's great. No, Putin's awful. All of the, we'll support Ukraine. No, we won't. And then they've now... I think a big part of this is economic. They've now given them lethal weapons. They've given lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. To the Ukrainians. Yeah. Which like, is, what sorts of ones? Like, small arms or... Anti-missile stuff as well. Okay. And this And so, before that, the Minsk Agreement kind of said that we're not we're going to kind of support the ukrainians in like defense but we're not going to give them lethal weapons we're not going to give them kind of stuff that could escalate the war whereas trump kind of very quickly was like yeah okay we're going to do this and i think a big part of that is because the u.s manufactures so many weapons but then it's a bit of a a contract more than anything else it's a business exactly and then I remember watching the inauguration on like Facebook Live with a Ukrainian friend of mine. And it was interesting because it was on her Facebook, so it was her like Ukrainian friends. And there was like loads of hearts. You know when on Facebook you can do this? Like, yeah. Like, I was looking at a very different yeah. Facebook Live from Canada, but yeah. Yeah. But what was fascinating was you had loads of hearts, but loads of angry faces. So there was this really kind of... A lot of red. A lot of, yeah. lot of strong feelings. Yeah, exactly. And then very quickly afterwards, the war escalated and loads of people started being killed in, in the East. So I think... Do you think, think that was a re- perhaps a result of the arms being so? I, so the arms thing came a bit later, but okay. I think that this was. I think part of it. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, like some people say it was the Ukrainians trying to prove to Trump that this is why you you need to support us because we're being killed here, and then or others say it was the Russians kind of being like, oh, Trump's going to support us now, so we can just go ahead and like mm-hmm. and just do whatever we want, and um, and I think they want a good, they need a good relationship with America. So I think, but there's a lot of suspicion and I don't think they trust him. I don't think, well, I don't think anyone trusts him. Yeah, how could you? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's hard to know, you know, there are some people who are really like, I can't believe this. I can't believe that this has happened. And there are other people who are like, well, you know, 
This is the world. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a lot of, particularly older people who are like, they've seen regimes rise and fall. They've seen, you know, they had a revolution in 2014, and then they had one before that in 2004. You know, they've had two revolutions in the 21st century. <laughs> right. So they're not strangers to kind of political turmoil or political upheaval. So I think there's a little bit of... While you have younger people who are far more ideological and far more like, we can make a difference and like we can, we can kind of fight this, I think older people are a bit like, well, you know, things will pass. Or, or you know, they're all bad anyway. I and suppose being an older Ukrainian person, that is an attitude that you would have to kind of build around yourself yeah. to make sense of the world. Absolutely, and to be resilient. And, you know, if you've gone through all of these different... Also, all of these different... The changing of the historical accounts, so, you know, under the Soviets, you weren't allowed to talk about the Holocaust. You weren't allowed to talk about Ukrainians who were prisoners of war during uh, during the Second World War because they were seen as, you know, if you're a prisoner of war during the Second World War, the minute you're released, you're sent to a gulag in Siberia because you should have died rather than be kind of rather than be in prison. <laughs> so wow. then after 1991, then suddenly they kind of there was this kind of period where they were we're not going to talk about anything controversial. And then later on, they start talking about these people who had been you know, imprisoned in Siberia, who'd been killed in the Holodomor, which wasn't recognized as a genocide until Ukrainian independence. You know, it's between seven and 10 million Ukrainians died in one year because of like Stalinist policies. And what year, this was post-World War II, I'm No, guessing. this was 1932 to 33. Oh, okay. So my, my grandmother was 10 and she survived this. She was living in Eastern Ukraine and like she lived through this as a child. And, um, it seems crazy that they would fight for the Russians then. I, I guess they weren't yeah. really given a vote no. on that. And after that happened, so part of that was to do with like, um, sort of an anti-peasant policy. So it's part of this kind of class war of like anti-peasant policies. Mm. So the whole thing was about breaking the backbone of Ukraine, which was the peasantry. So if you wipe out all of the peasants through collectivization and famine, then and then kind of come in with industrialization and make everything better, then kind of within 10 years, a lot of forgetting can happen in 10 years. Was it about eliminating ethnic Ukrainians and then replacing them with the kind of more Russian Ukrainian people? Or was it this kind of misguided modernization attempt on, on, the, on behalf of the Russians? That's a really good question. And I think that... I think a big part of it was about the the class thing, about, like, private ownership and peasants and that kind of thing. But I also think it was about seeing Ukrainians as inferior and as little Russians and as being worth less. I think... I don't think it was about entirely eliminating them. I think it was about crushing them to the point where they were subservient and where they were just going to be like, okay, we'll work for the collectives. We'll do kind of what we'll we'll kind of submit to whatever it is you want to do for Ukraine, and we're not going to fight for our own land, and we're not going to. It was about breaking the will, I think. Um, I don't think that there was. I don't think it was about killing all of them, but I think it was. It was kind of about killing enough to make it so it was like easy to kind of dominate. Yeah. Do you worry about your safety at all going over and doing this kind of work? Um. No, but I don't think, I don't know whether that's just me not thinking about it. Um, I think that when you're there and when you live in a city particularly, like it's, 
it's very easy just to be like, oh, it's just another city. And it's just kind of, you get various moments where there are kind of, you know, I was in one situation where there was a guy who was like waving a gun around and kind of talking about the need for a new violent revolution and this kind of thing. I think mainly he was quite drunk and quite traumatized from fighting in the war. Um, in the current war. Yeah. He was a young guy, like in his mid twenties. And um, I don't think there was any real risk there. It was quite frightening, obviously. Well, that's... <laughs> um, that's a pretty calm attitude. <laughs> yeah, I think at the time it was a little bit more like, well, what will happen will happen. Because, mm. um, you know, it was the middle of the night and it was really deep winter, so there was no public transport, there was no buses, there was really big snow Where everywhere. were you In you a block outside of the city. So there's no real... A Soviet block, and there's no real way of kind of getting out. But, um... I think that, I mean, there have been some kind of quite, I think the most frightening things that have happened have been with border guards and this kind of thing. You know, there was one situation where I was crossing the border and and these two guys, you know, the two border guards with guns, they kind of were asking me if I had any makeup in my bag. And I was like, no, no, I don't have any makeup. And they were like, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. And, you know, they made me strip down to like my underwear (laughs) and they, and then were like laughing at me. And, um, and then... I can't remember, I think because I said, like, well, I've got toothpaste, but that's it. And then they're like, oh, see, we knew you were lying and all this kind of thing. And then... These were Ukrainian border guards? Charming. Yeah, it was was a delightful experience. Mm -hmm. But I think it's those kind of... And I don't know whether that's... I think that's more misogyny than anything else. Yeah. Um, Because I think I've been quite good at keeping quite a low profile. Um, And again, I think being a young woman helps with that because... You get, like, the older guys particularly get quite protective. And then, you know, I had people started calling me Nasha Elena, which means, like, our Elena. Oh, well, that's... And this kind of thing. So, you get a lot. Of, so, I think that really helps. But I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I've been, you know, ser- at serious risk. And I think that... Although I think when you're on field work, it's quite difficult to tell sometimes because you're so engaged in, like this ethnographic experience that you you stop thinking like maybe this isn't safe (laughs) or maybe this is not the right thing I should be doing but I think my supervisors never guided me wrong and I think I've never I've never been in a situation where you know I was at serious serious risk when do you go back a couple weeks time a couple weeks once I leave Canada and then I'll be you know cut a few days to get over jet lag and then back and then off to Ukraine yeah yeah so well good luck out there thank you and thank you so much for doing this no and problem. for doing the work that you're doing i think i think people listening are going to find it pretty interesting yeah. and thank, you. thank you so much no problem <laughs> yeah so there you have it the very first episode of elsewhere i hope you enjoyed it so just as a bit of a little update here i was skyping elena back in june who is uh, in ukraine just finishing off her research project And big surprise, the situation has gotten worse. The nationalist Ukrainian group C-14 has been firebombing gypsy camps outside of Kiev. And knife attacks in other cities targeting gypsies have left one woman dead. Over 10,000 people have been killed as a result of the war in Ukraine since 2014. I promise it's not always going to be this heavy, guys. So, on that note... 
we're looking to collaborate with people in the city, tell some local stories. So if you or anyone you know might be interested in being on the show, we're putting the call out to musicians, artists, all around interesting people who wouldn't mind sitting down and having a conversation with me. If you want to reach out to us here at the show, you can reach me on Instagram at eastvandelsewhere or at eastvandelsewhere at gmail.com. We're going to play you out with a song by Daka Braka. This is a Ukrainian band that Elena turned me on to shortly after our interview. And I actually got to see them live a few months later at Vancouver Folk Fest, where I was volunteering. Um, they were incredible. So if you ever get the chance to see them, I would highly recommend it. I hope everything is going good for you out there. This is Daka Braka with Show Zappa Duba. Catch you next month. Hey!